I have a confession to make. Keep in mind, I write about frightening things for a living. I haven't read a horror novel yet that's managed to freak me out. And yet, I am deathly afraid of open water. There, I said it. I hate being on boats. I'm not even sure why, to be honest. I just am. Perhaps it's the idea that thousands of feet of cold darkness wait right beneath my feet. Maybe it's the mystery of it all, of what creatures, known and unknown, might be waiting for me, just beyond the reach of what little sunlight passes through the surface of the waves. Now, I live near the coast, and I've been on boats before, so my fear comes from experience. But it's not the cold, deep darkness beneath the ship that worries me the most. No, what really makes my skin crawl is the thought that, at any moment, the ship could sink. Maybe we can blame movies like Titanic or The Poseidon Adventure for showing us how horrific a shipwreck can be, but there are far more true stories of tragedy at sea than there are fictional ones. And it's in these real-life experiences, these maritime disasters that dot the map of history like an ocean full of macabre buoys, that we come face-to-face with the real dangers that await us in open water. The ocean takes much from us, But in rare moments, scattered across the pages of history, we've heard darker stories. Stories of ships that come back, of sailors returned from the dead, and of loved ones who never stop searching for land. Sometimes our greatest fears refuse to stay beneath the waves. I'm Aaron Mankey, and this is Lore. Shipwrecks aren't a modern notion. As far back as we can go, there are records of ships lost at sea. In The Odyssey by Homer, one of the oldest and most widely read stories ever told, we meet Odysseus shortly before he experiences a shipwreck at the hands of Poseidon, the god of the sea. Even farther back in time, we have the Egyptian tale of the shipwrecked sailor, dating to at least the 18th century BC. The truth is, for as long as humans have been building seafaring vessels and setting sail into unknown waters, there have been shipwrecks. It's a universal motif in the literatures of the world, and that's most likely because of the raw, basic risk that a shipwreck poses to the sailors of the ships. But it's not just the personal risk. Shipwrecks have been a threat to culture itself for thousands of years. The loss of a sailing vessel could mean the end of an expedition to discover new territory, or turn the tide on a naval battle. Imagine the results if Admiral Nelson had failed his mission off the coast of Spain in 1805, or how differently Russia's history might have played out had Tsar Nicholas II's fleet actually defeated the Japanese in the Battle of Tsushima. The advancement of cultures has hinged for thousands of years, in part, on whether or not their ships could return to port safely. But in those instances where ancient cultures have faded into the background of history, It is often through their shipwrecks that we get information about who they were. Just a few years ago, an ancient Phoenician shipwreck was discovered in the Mediterranean Sea near the island of Malta. It's thought to be at least 2,700 years old and contains some of the oldest Phoenician artifacts ever uncovered. For archaeologists and historians who study these ancient people, the shipwreck has offered new information and ideas. The ocean takes much from us, 
and upon occasion, it also gives back. Sometimes, though, what it gives us is something less inspiring. Sometimes, it literally gives us back our dead. One such example comes from 1775. The legend speaks of a whaling vessel discovered off the western coast of Greenland in October of that year. Now, this is a story with tricky provenance, so the details will vary depending on where you read about it. The ship's name might have been the Octavius, or possibly the Gloriana, and from what I can tell, the earliest telling of this tale can be traced back to a newspaper article from 1828. The story tells of how one Captain Warren discovered the whaler drifting through a narrow passage in the ice. After hailing the vessel and receiving no reply, their own ship was brought near and the crew boarded the mysterious vessel. Inside, they discovered a horrible sight. Throughout the ship, the entire crew was found frozen to death where they sat. When they explored further and found the captain's quarters, the scene was even more eerie. There in the cabin were more bodies. A frozen woman holding a dead infant in her arms. A sailor holding a tinderbox, as if trying to manufacture some source of warmth. And there at his desk sat the captain. One account tells of how his face and eyes were covered in a green, wet mold. In one hand, the man held a fountain pen, and the ship's logbook was open in front of him. Captain Warren leaned over and read the final entry, dated November 11th of 1762, 13 years prior to the ship's discovery. We have been enclosed in the ice 70 days, it said. The fire went out yesterday, and our master has been trying ever since to kindle it again, but without success. His wife died this morning. There is no relief. Captain Warren and his crew were so frightened by the encounter that they grabbed the ship's log and retreated as fast as they could back to their own ship. The Octavius, if indeed that was the ship's name, was never seen again. The mid-1800s saw the rise of the steel industry in America. It was the beginning of an empire that would rule the economy for over a century, and like all empires, there were capitals. St. Louis, Baltimore, Buffalo, Philadelphia. All of these cities played host to some of the largest steelworks in the country. And for those that were close to the ocean, this created the opportunity for the perfect partnership, the shipyard. Steel could be manufactured and delivered locally and then used to construct the ocean-going steamers that were the lifeblood of late 19th century life. The flood of immigration through Ellis Island, for example, wouldn't have been possible without the steamers. My own family made that journey. One such steamer to roll out of Philadelphia in 1882 was the SS Valencia. It was 252 feet long and weighed in at nearly 1,600 tons. The Valencia was built before complex bulkheads and hull compartments, and it wasn't the fastest ship on the water, but it was dependable. It spent the first decade and a half running passengers between New York City and Caracas, Venezuela. In 1897, while in the waters near Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, the Valencia was attacked by a Spanish cruiser. The next year, it was sold and moved to the West Coast, where it served in the Spanish-American War as a troop ship between the U.S. and the Philippines. 
After the war, the Valencia was sold to a company that used the ship to sail between California and Alaska, but in 1906, it filled in for another ship that was under repair, and the ship's new route became San Francisco to Seattle. They gave the ship a checkup in January of that year, and everything checked out good. For a 24-year-old vessel, the Valencia was in perfect working order. It set sail on the 20th of January, 1906, leaving sunny California and heading north. The ship was crewed by nine officers, 56 crew members, and played host to 108 passengers. Somewhere near Cape Mendocino, off the coast of Northern California, though, the weather turned sour, visibility dropped, and the winds kicked up. Now, when you're a ship at night, even a slow one, losing the ability to see is a very bad thing. Typically, without visual navigation, a captain might fall back on the celestial method, using the stars in the same way sailors did centuries ago. But even that option was off the table for Captain Oscar Johnson, and so he used the only tool he had left. Dead Reckoning. The name alone should hint at the efficacy of the method. Using last known navigational points as a reference, Captain Johnson essentially guessed at the Valencia's current location. But guessing can be deadly. And so instead of pointing the ship at the Strait of Juan de Fuca between Vancouver Island and Washington State, he unknowingly aimed it at the island itself. Blinded by the weather and faulty guesswork, the Valencia struck a reef just 50 feet from shore near Pachina Point on the southwest side of Vancouver Island. They say the sound of the metal ripping apart on the rocks sounded like the screams of dozens of people. It came without warning, and the crew did what they could to react by immediately reversing the engines and backing off the rocks. Damage control reported the hull had been torn wide open. Water was pouring in at a rapid pace, and there was no hope of repairing the ship. It lacked the hull compartments that later ships would include for just such occasions, and the captain knew that all hope was lost. So he powered the engines again and drove the ship back onto the rocks. He wasn't trying to destroy the Valencia completely, but to ground it, hoping that it would keep the ship from sinking as rapidly. That's when all hell broke loose. Before Captain Johnson could organize an evacuation, six of the seven lifeboats were lowered over the side. Three of those flipped over on the way down, dumping out the people who were in them. Two more capsized after hitting the water, and the sixth boat simply vanished. In the end, only one boat made it to safety. Frank Len was one of the few survivors of the shipwreck. He later described the scene in all its horrific detail. Screams of women and children mingled in an awful chorus with the shrieking of the wind the dash of rain, and the roar of the breakers. As the passengers rushed on deck, they were carried away in bunches by the huge waves that seemed as high as the ship's mastheads. The ship began to break up almost at once, and the women and children were lashed to the rigging above the reach of the sea. It was a pitiful sight to see frail women wearing only their nightdresses with bare feet on the freezing ratlines, trying to shield children in their arms from the icy wind and rain. About that same time, the last lifeboat made it safely away under the control of the ship's bosun, Officer Timothy McCarthy. According to him, the last thing he saw after leaving the ship was, and I quote, the brave faces looking at us over the broken rail of a wreck, 
and the echo of a great hymn sung by the women through the fog and mist and flying spray. The situation was desperate. Attempts were made by the ship's remaining crew to fire a rescue line from the Lyle Line gun into the trees at the top of the nearby cliff. If someone could reach the line and anchor it, the rest of the passengers would be saved. The first line they fired became tangled and snapped clean, but the second successfully reached the cliff above. A small group of men even managed to make it to shore, too. There were nine of them, led by a schoolteacher named Frank Bunker. But when they reached the top of the cliff, they discovered the path forked to the left and the right. Bunker picked the left. Had he instead turned right, then the men would have come across that second line within minutes and possibly saved all remaining passengers. Instead, he led the men along a telegraph line path for over two hours before finally managing to get a message out to authorities about the accident, making a desperate plea for help. And help was sent. But even though three separate ships raced to the site of the wreck to offer assistance, the rough weather and choppy sea prevented them from getting close enough to do any good. Even still, the sight of the ships nearby gave a false sense of hope to those remaining on the wreckage. And so when the few survivors offshore offered help, they declined. There were no more lifeboats, no more lifelines to throw, and no ships brave enough to get closer. The women and children stranded on the ship clung to the rigging and rails against the cold Pacific waters. But when a large wave washed the wounded ship off the rocks and into deep water, everyone was lost. All told, 137 of the 165 lives aboard the ship were lost that cold early January morning. If that area of the coastline had yet to earn its modern nickname of the Graveyard of the Pacific, this was the moment that cemented it. The wreck of the Valencia was clearly the result of a series of unfortunate accidents, but officials still went looking for someone to blame. In the aftermath of the tragedy, the Canadian government took steps to ensure life-saving measures along the coast that could help with future shipwrecks. A lighthouse was constructed near Pachina Point, and a coastal trail was laid out that would eventually become known as the West Coast Trail. But the story of the Valencia was far from over. Keep in mind, there have been scores of shipwrecks, tragedies that span centuries in that same region of water, and like most areas with a concentrated number of tragic deaths, unusual activity has been reported by those who visit. Just five months after the Valencia sank, a local fisherman reported an amazing discovery. While exploring seaside caves on the southwestern coast of Vancouver Island, he described how he stumbled upon one of the lifeboats within the cave. In the boat, he claimed, were eight human skeletons. The cave was said to be blocked by a large rock, and the interior was at least 200 feet deep. Experts found it hard to explain how the boat could have made it from the waters outside into the space within, but theories speculate that an unusually high tide could have lifted the boat up and over. A search party was sent out to investigate the rumor, but it was found that the boat was unrecoverable due to the depth of the cave and the rocks blocking the entrance. In 1910, the Seattle Times ran a story with reports of unusual sightings in the area of the wreck. According to a number of sailors, a ship resembling the Valencia had been witnessed off the coast. The mystery ship could have been any local steamer, except for one small detail. The ship was already floundering on the rocks, half-submerged. Clinging to the wreckage, they say, were human figures, holding on against the wind and the waves. 
Humans have had a love affair with the ocean for thousands of years. Across those dark and mysterious waters lay all manner of possibility. New lands, new riches, new cultures to meet and trade with. Setting sail has always been something akin to the start of an adventure, whether the destination was the Northern Passage or just up the coast. But an adventure at sea always comes with risk. We understand this in our core. It makes us cautious. It turns our stomachs. It fills us with equal parts dread and hope. Because there, on the waves of the ocean, everything can go according to plan. Or it can fail tragically. Maybe this is why the ocean is so often used as a metaphor for the fleeting, temporary nature of life. Time, like waves, eventually wears us all down. Our lives can be washed away in an instant, no matter how strong or high we build them. Time takes much from us, just like the ocean. The waters off the coast of Vancouver Island are a perfect example of that cruelty and risk. They can be harsh, even brutal, toward vessels that pass through them. The cold winters and sharp rocks leave ships with little chance of survival. And with over 70 shipwrecks to date, the graveyard of the Pacific certainly lives up to its reputation. For years after the tragedy of 1906, fishermen and locals on the island told stories of a ghostly ship that patrolled the waters just off the coast. They said it was crewed by skeletons of the Valencia sailors who lost their lives there. It would float into view and then disappear like a spirit again before anyone could reach it. In 1933, in the waters just north of the 27-year-old wreck of the Valencia, a shape floated out of the fog. When a local approached it, the shape became recognizable. It was a lifeboat. It looked as if it had been launched just moments before. Yet there, on the side of the boat, were pale letters that spelled out a single word. Valencia. As I've already said, water has a way of taking things from us. We see that truth play out in stories of tragedy at sea, but it's also present inland, wherever we find a body of water. If you stick around through this brief sponsor break, I'll share one more chilling tale of just how cruel those waves can be. The Marvins owned not one but two local businesses. There was the farm, which sat on the edge of a small lake known to the locals as Fairfield Pond. And about three miles away, the couple also owned and operated a sawmill, which was both necessary in the ever-expanding Vermont of the 1840s, and also pretty common given how wooded the state was, and still is. The two businesses meant that the Marvins had a number of people who worked for them, cutting timber and working the farm, which meant that they stayed very busy. But they also tried to make time for their community, and Mrs. Marvin received frequent visits from the wives of the men who worked for her and her husband. One of those visits was a young mother named Mrs. Clifford. Each day, she would walk the short road that connected her own property to that of the Marvins, and then the two women would spend a while chatting. 
Mrs. Clifford always brought along her infant girl, and the pair of them always wore a set of matching shawls that kept the sun out of their faces. One day, though, Mrs. Clifford and her child were accompanied by Mr. Clifford himself. It was a Sunday, and he had come to ask for some help from the Marvins. Mrs. Clifford's parents lived in Fairfield just on the other side of the pond, and rather than walk all the way around it, they were wondering if the Marvins might lend them their boat. Mr. Marvin agreed, and the young family set out toward the shore, where they untethered the boat and rowed west. The Marvins got on with their Sunday plans and quickly forgot about the visit. At sundown, though, a knock brought them back to their front door where they found Mr. Clifford standing by himself. Mr. Marvin assumed the man had come to tell them that the boat had been returned and secured at the dock, but one look at Clifford told him that there was more to the story than that. Mr. Clifford was wet from head to toe, and he had a look of panic on his face. The boat had capsized, he told them. It had rolled over in a freak accident. He tried to save his wife and child, but they were gone before he could reach them. Mr. Marvin assembled some of his employees, and the group all set about searching the waters for bodies. Sometime before sunrise, they found them. Mrs. Marvin was there with Mr. Clifford when he viewed the bodies, and then gave one slow, grim nod to signal that, yes, they were indeed his wife and child. But she noticed something else. The matching shawls that they had worn each and every day were both missing, lost to the cold waters of the pond, no doubt. A few nights later, Mrs. Marvin had a dream. In it, she was standing on the shores of Fairfield Pond, where she could see Mr. Clifford stumbling out of the dark waters. As the dream unfolded, she followed his path to shore and into a dark copse of trees, weaving in and out of tall oaks and fallen pines. Finally, Clifford came to a stop at an old hollow stump. Bending down on one knee, he pulled something from his shirt. There was a flash of color, and Mrs. Marvin recognized the fabric at once. It was the set of identical shawls that Clifford's wife and child had been wearing the day they drowned. She then watched as he stuffed both of them inside the stump and covered the opening from wandering eyes. Mrs. Marvin awoke the following morning with an uneasy feeling. Soon after, she asked one of the farmhands to walk with her to the pond and then veered into the copse of trees there along the shore. Every step felt familiar to her, and the path seemed obvious. A few moments after arriving, she was standing over a hollow stump. The shawls were inside. After the authorities were led to the hidden shawls, Clifford was arrested. He confessed to the murders of his wife and daughter a short while later, and the subsequent trial put him in jail for the rest of his life. Mrs. Marvin, of course, was the most significant witness in the courtroom. Sometimes the thing you're looking for is lost in a dream. And sometimes, if you're lucky... You'll find it there as well. This episode of Lore was researched, written, and produced by me, Aaron Mankey, with music by Chad Lawson. Lore is much more than just a podcast. There's a book series available in bookstores and online, and two seasons of the television show on Amazon Prime Video. Check them both out if you want more lore in your life. I also make and executive produce a whole bunch of other podcasts, all of which I think you'd enjoy. My production company, Grim and Mild, specializes in shows that sit at the intersection of the dark and the historical. 
You can learn more about all of our shows and everything else going on over in one central place, grimandmild.com. And you can also follow this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Lore Podcast, all one word, and then click that follow button. And when you do, say hi. I like it when people say hi. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>